Welcome to the Reformation Fellowship Podcast. Reformation Fellowship provides support and fellowship for all who would stand for the Reformation of Christ Church worldwide. We long to see the church revitalized by the gospel and seek to encourage all who share that vision. We gather together for gospel-hearted fellowship around gospel-minded theology. Welcome back to the Reformation Fellowship Podcast. This is part two of a conversation with Dr. Donald Fairbairn, Professor of Historical and Systematic Theology at Union School of Theology and Dean of Newton House, as well as serving as the Robert E. Cooley Professor of Early Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And we are, uh, we're halfway through a conversation where we've been getting to know Don and getting to hear about uh, how the Lord brought him to himself and shaped him for ministry. And uh, now we are neck deep into the glories of the Trinity. And so we're going to continue that conversation here. A minute ago, you asked about the word thetosis that I use in the book. If I could swing back to that and talk about that for a minute. Um, The word thetosis is a Greek word. Is used very, very commonly in the Greek church fathers. It is often, unfortunately, translated as deification. And so when Protestants hear the translation, we assume that it's about somehow being absorbed into the being of God such that God's uniqueness is dissolved and your individuality is lost and all of that, as if it were kind of like Eastern monism or something like that. Um, so that's the kind of connotation that that word has in the minds of the not very many Protestants who know the word. But what I have discovered in my studies of the Great Church Fathers is that there are a variety of ways of understanding that union with God or that is just what we unfortunately call deification in English. And some of them are pretty impersonal. We share in the qualities of God, what Protestants would later call the communicable attributes of God. Mm. Some of them are too absorptionistic, too much like Eastern monism. But there's another strand of thought about thesis or union, let's call it union with God rather than deification. There's another strand of thought about thesis in the early church, which sees it in very relational ways. Adoption is the key idea, and adoption is understood not merely as a legal category, but much more than that as a personal or relational category. Only the true son can make us the adopted sons and daughters of God. And as we are adopted sons and daughters, we share in the warmth of fellowship that the father has had from all eternity with his natural son, his unique son, Christ. And so it's this strand of thought about Theosis that I think is very biblical, very foundational to Christianity, and very profitable for us. And it's unfortunate that we have a tendency to write off all of the the ideas related to Theosis because we don't like the word and don't like some of the other ways that it is interpreted or described. So this is the strand of thought 
that I'm I'm trying to emphasize in the book. And not surprisingly, I almost never actually use that word to describe it. I, I translate their language into terms that would enable Protestants to give it a hearing. And so who in who of the early church fathers would be of that strand? Just if if a listener says that I, I wanna want to go and, and read a little bit or explore this, who would be uh, a, a few to start with? Well, you see this in, in a number of people, uh, but the person to start with probably because he's the easiest to read and exhibits this would be Athanasius, mm. who, was, who lived in Egypt in the fourth century. The person who exhibits it the best is Cyril of Alexandria in the fifth century. Uh, Cyril is much more difficult to read, much more long-winded. Uh, it takes a lot of patience and a lot of effort to read Cyril. But Athanasius, mm -hmm. you can get the same ideas expressed more concisely and in a lot simpler language. So, so mm -hmm. Athanasius is the person that I often recommend that people start with. Okay. And I think it's worth pointing out that one of unions and Reformation Fellowship sort of theme ideas is the statement by Athanasius that it is more pious to describe God as in relation to his son and call him father than mm -hmm. to describe him in relation to creation and call him um, un uncreated or unoriginate. And so that's a reminder that we need to think about God relationally. We need to think about him in terms of his eternal son and his spirit and then ask, how does that affect us? So that has become a bit of a theme idea for union. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. So as I'm as I'm listening to you, I could imagine that some people, if they're hearing this for the first time, they may be thinking, particularly when we started this conversation, um, are you messing with my salvation? <laughs> are, you, are you tinkering? Are you, um, are you, you know, is this... Uh, is this some type of niche kind of add-on? But we're we're really talking about a doctrine that spans the history of the church that has um, maybe it's been talked about in different ways with different language, but really um, some of our some of our best minds, you might say, and, and biggest hearts have have for the history of the church tried to help us see this. Is, am I hearing that right? Yes, yes, that is certainly the case. Uh, we we rarely use the word thousis, and I don't think we should use the word thousis mm -hmm. when, when speaking among ourselves as Protestants. But you see this idea very foundational to a lot of the great thinkers in Western Christianity as well as Eastern, and Protestant Christianity as well as other branches of the church. And I, the, a lot of this audience probably knows very well that Michael Reeves in his book, uh, which in Britain is called The Good God and in America is called Delighting in the Trinity, as well as Fred, Fred Sanders in his book, The Deep Things of God, talk about very, very similar ideas to my book, Life in the Trinity, but using evangelical sources. So those, those three books, I think, are very complementary. For over a decade, I've been telling people uh, these books are are working from different sources, but they're very, very consistent with one another. And they show uh, a common 
thread that runs all the way through Christianity, all through Christian history. But to the question, are you messing with my salvation? No, absolutely not. I'm trying to show what undergirds a believer's salvation. Yeah. Let's talk about justification for a minute. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us in justification. Yes, absolutely true. Does that happen at the beginning of faith? Yes, that's absolutely true. Why? On what basis? Because the Holy Spirit unites us to the righteous one. Mm. So the righteousness of Christ is a righteousness that it is, is his own, it is his, is his inherently. Mm. It is credited to us when we are united to him. Reason the same way with respect to adoption. We become sons and daughters of God by adoption when we are united to the true son. Yeah. God's true son has become our brother so that we could become his brothers and sisters and therefore, and therefore call his father our father. Yeah. Union with Christ undergirds those two dominant ways of describing salvation, justification, and adoption. And yeah. so am I, am I messing with it? Am I calling it into a question? Absolutely not. But I'm trying to show, with the help of some great minds in the Christian church, as they pointed me to the Bible, mm -hmm. I'm trying to show the reality that ultimately undergirds the realities that take place at the beginning of our salvation. Yeah, yeah. that's good. Yeah, this is uh, this is uh, not. <laughs> I'll, I'll, um, I'll just in case anyone thinks I thought it was messing with our our salvation. Um, now, this is uh, if if you've read the Puritans and enjoyed what they've helped you see about union with Christ and the the warmth of, of being brought into all that, all that Christ has and has shared with us, then that's, that's what we're, we're talking about, except just a little different language. Um, hearing from other wonderful um, Christians, forefathers in the faith. Um, that's great. You mentioned your book, you mentioned the Delighting in the Trinity or the Good God by Michael Reeves and the Deep Things of God by Fred Sanders. Um, there's been, it seems like, maybe starting with around the, the time those were coming out, just an increased interest in the Trinity and Trinitarian thought, an increase in publication, especially at the scholarly level, but also um, in some popular forms. What, um, what excites you about maybe what you've seen over the last oh, decade and a half or so? And are there any concerns you have for the direction of Trinitarian discourse today? Okay. There certainly has been a, a resurgence of interest among evangelical theologians in the doctrine of the Trinity in the way it's articulated in the Church Fathers. Uh, I think there has been a growing sense of dissatisfaction with our Western tendency to be content with formulas, but not to probe more deeply. Mm -hmm. um, 
the there's been a tendency in in a fair bit of Western Trinitarian theology throughout history to do what I like to call justifying the juxtaposition of oneness and threeness. And I'll say that again, justifying the juxtaposition of oneness or threeness, as if Trinitarian theology is primarily about the the math game, how God can be one and three at the same time. Mm -hmm. But we are recognizing more and more that as important as the math game is, as important as justifying the juxtaposition of oneness and threeness is for apologetic purposes and philosophical purposes, it, it doesn't get at the heart of what it means to be God. Mm. To get at the heart of what it means to be God, you have to talk about God in relation to his son mm. and in relation to his spirit. You have to start there with that personal fellowship between the three of them. And it, it is inc that is increasingly being recognized in evangelical circles, and it's very encouraging to see that recognized. The, and I suppose the, the discouraging thing or the potentially dangerous thing about that is that sometimes people want to co-opt our understanding of the Trinity for the sake of this or that particular agenda when it comes to human relationships. Mm -hmm. If people say, because of this aspect of the father-son relationship, we need to do this. And it's certainly true that the relational nature of the Trinity has implications for the way we treat each other. Mm -hmm. But that relational understanding of the Trinity is too important to become merely a plank and theological arguments that are actually about something else. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to start with and focus long on and drink deeply from the well of the Father's relationship with the Son before we even ask, what does that Im imply about this or that debated question that we have related to human relationships and other aspects of theology and that mm -hmm. sort of thing? So I, I I want to see us tease out the implications for the way we love one another, but I don't want us to treat the Trinity as simply a means to other theological ends. Yeah. All the other theological ideas need to serve our worship of the Trinity rather than having God and the Trinity be a means to other theological ends. So I think that's a potential caution that it's worth remembering in the midst of this, what's called the evangelical renaissance of Trinitarian theology. Yeah. Let me ask you, um, it's a bit of a related question, I think. I, I've uh, recently encountered a few pastors, um, folks in ministry who are trying to um, beef up <laughs> their, their understanding of the Trinity and really give it the the thought and attention reflection that they um that it warrants uh, and and i find that some of them are feeling even as they're reading works about the the trinity and the, and the father's relation to the son sometimes it's presented in language that um still seems almost like we're we're focusing on the 
we're not it's not a math problem anymore but it, it still seems to be um, turning the relationships in the within the trinity into sterile um if we can just get the wording right uh, uh, around the processions and the missions and the then then we've well that's the trinity um and they maybe read those books or that article or listen to that lecture and leave thinking well i guess i understand now the not just the math but the science of the trinity mm -hmm. but i'm still not sure how <laughs> it doesn't seem more important somehow as uh when it's presented that way does that make sense i may not be asking that question very well it, it does make sense uh this this may take a few minutes to try to explain but i do have an idea of where this comes from if you look at the way the bible talks about god in the old testament we have a strong insistence, of course, that there is one God and that he is undivided within himself and that he has this particular character. Mm. So we talk about the attributes of God, but we derive those attributes from the biblical and especially the Old Testament depiction of the characteristics that this one true God of the Bible has. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's in a nutshell what the Bible is doing in the Old Testament and talking about God. And then there are hints in the Old Testament, and it's spelled out much more clearly in the New Testament. This God, the one God, the only God, the Lord of the entire universe who has this character, has never been alone because he has a son who does not constitute a different God. He constitutes the same God. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, God, Genesis 1. Mm -hmm. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1, 1. And the same thing with the Holy Spirit. This God has a spirit who's not a different God. He's not a lesser God. He constitutes the same God. That's the way the Bible unveils to us the Trinity, in contrast to the following. The Bible doesn't say, here's one God, as described in the Old Testament, but we need to find with him, to find, we need to find within him three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible finds next to him a person who is also God, and another person who is also God. Think about Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1, and you see this most clearly. Mm -hmm. That's what the Bible does. That's what the church fathers did. That's what the Greek church has done throughout its history. But that probably sounds a little bit strange to a lot of the listeners here. And the reason it sounds strange to us has to do with what you were talking about a few minutes ago, because something has changed about the way the Western church talks about God. And in my opinion, what has changed is that the Western church has not wanted to use the word God, both as a description of the Father and as a statement of the status of the three persons. Let me say that differently. 
the Bible uses the word God two ways, uh, several ways. But when talking about the true God, the Bible uses the word God two ways. Most fundamentally, it uses the word God to talk about the Father. But it also uses the word God as a predicate to describe the Son and the Spirit as well as the Father. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. Notice that the word God there refers to the Father. Mm-hmm. And the Word was God. Okay, there in two successive clauses, John has used the word God to refer to the Father and to describe the Son. Mm-hmm. Now, theologians who are trying to be scientific One of the things that they really like to do is to make words into terms. And a word becomes a term whenever you use it the same way every time. So theologically, they want to use the word God the same way. And that, I think, has contributed to the fact that the Western church wants to use the word God to refer to the whole Trinity. And not also to refer separately to the Father, Son, and Spirit. And so from that comes the idea that God in the Old Testament is referring to the whole Trinity, and we need to find in him the three persons. But the Bible doesn't ever try to find the Father within God. The Bible instead finds the Son next to the Father God and finds the Spirit next to the Father God, and then says they're equal, they're eternal, they're not separate gods they're not lower gods they're not halfway god they're just as fully god next to god this is what the nicene creed is getting at when it describes the son as god from god mm-hmm. light from light true god from true god but that but there has been a, a shift in the philosophical concerns of the western church which lead it to talk about God in a somewhat different way for the sake of making the word God into a term. And so then Trinitarian theology tends to become about philosophical exactitude and terminological exactitude. And Mm -hmm. so we become content with expressions like one essence, three persons, without probing the significance of the relationship those persons have with one another because we've we've gotten into a little bit different way of using language than the way the Bible itself uses language. Mm -hmm. As as I talk to people, I'd rather have them use the word God the way the Bible does, even though there's two different ways, than use the word God only one way and for the sake of precision slide a little bit away from a focus on the father in relationship to his son. Mm. So that's kind of a long explanation, but but does that make sense? That's a, a, in a nutshell, what I think is happening that leads the, the feel of Western Trinitarian theology not quite to match with what we sense when we read the Bible talking about God. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that does make sense. Um, when it seems when Jesus is talking about the Father, or when Paul is describing 
um, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, like uh, say uh, in, in Ephesians one or elsewhere, that um, there's a, a warmth there. <laughs> there's a there's more of the emphasis on the what we might call the relationship, the the uh, the love between the persons, uh, than about necessarily uh, some of the some of these terms that we've created that give us the right ordering, the right answer to the the, the question on a test. <laughs> right. When we're trying yeah. to not, not screw the Trinity up. Um, yeah. No, that's that's helpful. Thank you for that. Mm. Yeah, well, if let you me think about the baptism of Jesus and the transfiguration to very striking instances in the New Testament where you have all three persons mm. visibly, obviously, there together. What does mm -hmm. the Father say in those dramatic situations that he has put together for the benefit of the onlookers in the first case and Peter, James, and John in the second case? Mm. This is my beloved son. Mm. That's the word that comes out of these highly dramatized situations that God has put together to teach his people about, about who he is. Mm -hmm. And of course, the, the language of person and essence is important. Um, justifying the juxtaposition of oneness and threeness is also important. All of that has its place. But we don't want to be content merely with those concepts. Because like all theological concepts, these concepts are ideas that point to realities. Mm. And we want to focus on and enjoy the realities, not just be content with their concepts so as to get the right answer on a test, as you put it just mm. a minute ago. Theological mm. ideas are never meant to stand on their own. They point to realities. Mm. and are supposed to point to realities. And those realities all have to do with God's relationship to his son and spirit or with God's relationship to his people or both of those. Mm. So we need to keep that in mind as we wade through theological terminology and an intensive focus on concepts. The concepts are not the end. They are a means to our enjoyment mm. of the God who is the reality to which they point. Yeah, that's helpful. Well, we are getting close to the end here on time, and uh, maybe we can finish with uh, one more question. You are continuing uh, to teach at Gordon-Conwell. Um, as a alumni of Gordon-Conwell, I'm excited to hear that, but I'm also really excited to hear that you've recently been appointed Professor of Systematic and Historical Theology at Union School of Theology, as well as the Dean of their Newton House, and um, wanted to hear from you. What, what, what are you looking forward to? What are you excited about in, um, in adding that ministry to, um, to where the Lord has you in this season? Thank you. Um, I've, I've known Mike Reeves and Dan Hames for a while. I, I haven't, haven't seen them very often. I've actually, I, I had lunch with them in Oxford 
in December of 2014, and that's the only time I've actually seen them both, met them both in person. Uh, but in a sense, we go way back. Uh, and, and what has connected us has been this relational way of understanding the Trinity and this relational way of understanding our Christian life. Um, Mike, Mike's book, Delighting in the Trinity, or The Good God, the British title, and my book, Life in the Trinity, are, are very, very closely related. And uh, we're, we're really focusing on the same undergirding truths. And, and so is Dan. And Dan was in the early stages of his PhD research at the time we met. Um, but he and I have corresponded a great deal. And he has become himself an expert on Cyril of Alexandria, who figured very prominently in my own study and the discoveries mm -hmm. that I made from the early church as well. So I, I often say that that Dan Hames and Mike Reeves are among my greatest theological kindred spirits in the word, in the world. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, it's a delight to have closer contact with them and to be able to work together with them. But what what really excites me about this ministry, about Union and Reformation Fellowship and UST and Newton House, is that we seem to be assembling a team of like-minded people who share a very similar perspective on what is most foundational about the Christian faith. Mm. You, know, you know, one way of assembling a team would be to say, well, everybody has to be in the same tradition or the same denomination. You get, you get uniformity that mm. way. But that's not what we're doing here. What we're doing here is, is assembling a group of people who are committed to this relational, Trinitarian, Christocentric, warm way of looking at the Christian faith and at Christian spirituality as a service to the church and as a service to the world. And I'm excited about that as being what unites us. I'm excited mm -hmm. about the potential for ministry to the church and to the world as a result of that foundational agreement and foundational emphasis and focus. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to the opportunity that the Lord has given me to be involved with UST, with Union, with Newton House. Mm. Awesome. That's wonderful. Well, I know that um, we are excited that you are coming alongside and, and uh, linking arms with uh, the efforts of Union and Reformation Fellowship and Newton House. And so I'm looking forward to getting to know you more over the the coming months and, and Lord willing years. And I uh, want to thank you, Don, for joining us here on the Reformation Fellowship Podcast. I've been encouraged and I know our listeners um, will be as well. Thank you very much. Thanks again for the invitation. And it's a pleasure to spend this time together. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Reformation Fellowship Podcast. We pray that this time together has been a blessing to you. The Reformation Fellowship is a ministry of union, and so all that we do, we hope it helps you to delight in God, grow in Christ, serve the church, and bless the world. If that is your hope, that is your desire, then friends, welcome to the fellowship.